This is a special sneak peek of our new show, Conviction, American Panic. The next seven episodes are available for free only on Spotify. To keep listening to the rest of this story and find out what happens to the Quinnies, download the Spotify app, search Conviction, and listen for free. A quick warning before we start the show. This series contains descriptions of adult subject matter, including details of sexual abuse and trauma. It might not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. There's this memory John Quinney has from when he was a kid in San Antonio in the 1980s. So one night I went for a ride with my my dad and his friend Lewis. Uh, We were driving around the country, you know, the country roads for a while. I sit in the back seat. We come across two hitchhiking teenagers, girls. The car slowed down, and John's dad rolled down the window to talk to them. I remember my dad asking if they were Christians because I know that's what they were looking for, were the Christians. John remembers the hitchhikers getting in, but instead of his dad taking them to where they were headed, he drove to a field outside town. It was dark. There was barrels with fire, you know, just coming up. John could see people gathered there. Some he recognized and others he didn't. We were standing there with a a few of his friends. There were just like, you know, songs and words, you know, like other languages that I understand. And my dad's standing in the middle because he's a leader. They, uh, They torture these girls for a while before killing them and saying that this is the Last Supper of our Lord and Savior, Lucifer. And then they were put in the graves that were previously dug before we got there. And uh, that was it. That's all I remember. At nine years old, John Quinney realized that his father, Melvin, was the leader of a satanic cult. Local authorities began to investigate. They went out and started to dig for bodies. Word spread that this church-going father of four was actually a devil worshiper who tortured his own children. And as more and more allegations came to light, they ended up all over the local news. 41-year-old Melvin Quinney won't be visiting any of his four children soon. Two of the children say their father abused them and forced them into satanic cult rituals. They also claim they witnessed the cult killing of a child. And as for the man at the center of all these allegations, Melvin Quinney? I was shocked. And what was your response when... Uh, You know, my first thought was, oh, what a bunch of bullshit. Nonetheless, in the summer of 1991, Melvin Quinney was put on trial. The main witness against him, his now 10-year-old son, John. And I knew it was coming down to me. I knew I was the last chance they had to get him off the streets, and I knew it was all up to me to, to, I guess, be the hero, you know? When it came time for Melvin to address the judge, he stood up and said, My name is Melvin George Quinney Jr. This never happened, and all I can ask is, is the mercy of the court. What's striking here is how both sides are equally hard to believe. Either Melvin Quinney was living a secret double life as a satanic cult leader in the suburbs of San Antonio, or 
his 10-year-old son had inexplicably made the whole thing up and had convinced the authorities to go along with it. I'm Julia Marchese. And I'm Sharon Shattuck. We've spent the last couple of years investigating what exactly happened to John and Melvin Quinney. What we found was an even darker and stranger story than anything we could have imagined. A story that went far beyond this one family and far beyond Texas. It's a story that challenges our beliefs about memory and truth and what, given the right circumstances, we're capable of doing to those we love the most. The Quinney story begins way before Melvin and his 10-year-old son, John, found themselves on opposite sides of a courtroom, long before there was any inkling that that was in their future. John says in the early 80s, they were just an average family living in Texas. I wanted to start with everything you can remember before everything went bad. What were the happy years like? You know, they're normal, you know I mean? Like, I know we moved around a lot. Um, which I found out was just because we were poor. Um, but uh, I don't think there was a whole lot of weird stuff there, you know. Um, I don't think there was anything to make me think that anything was going on, you know, before it happened. John Quinney was born in 1980 and grew up outside San Antonio. The Quinneys were a typical suburban Christian family, John remembers their house had pictures of Jesus on the walls, and his parents, Melvin and Debbie, played gospel music every Sunday. In a family photo album, John's a chubby kid with a mess of brown hair, and as much as you can tell from photographs, he looks happy. In one, he's standing next to his dad and two little sisters in the kitchen. He's grinning wide with traces of red popsicle all over his face. John was such a... Well, he was just a damn cute kid, you know, he, he, was, uh, he was a cute little boy. Melvin Quinney is 71 years old, and he's a little hard of hearing, so I had to shout my questions at him sometimes. Do you like being a father? Do you like being a father? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm sorry. Don't, don't get me started on that. Uh, even today, over three decades later, he gets emotional thinking about the life he had when his kids were young. And despite what would come, Melvin and John actually remember the early years in much the same way. John says he and his dad were really close. They loved watching old horror movies together. And sometimes Melvin would tuck the kids in at night with ghost stories that he made up. Tell me about the funny voice. Like the one about a creature named the Hum Yum that ate kids' fingers. Sometimes, Melvin really got into character. Basically, I used to go, uh, if I can do it, My name is Legion. Leave me alone. You know, stuff like that. Melvin, they loved that's it. really scary. <laughs> well, they loved it. You know, they, 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 they really did love him. 
I, I remember asking for the voice. Like, I remember thinking it was something cool he could do. Um, and like on command, just to scare us, you know, like sneak up behind us. Melvin worked as an exterminator, and sometimes he'd bring home little gifts for John. I remember catching a tarantula and bringing it home to John for a pet. He loved that tarantula, but Debbie wasn't real happy about it. We won't hear from Melvin's wife, Debbie, in this series. She died in 1999. But growing up, John says he was close with his mom. He told my producer, Meg, they even looked a lot alike. Yeah, she was a... Like a female version of me, honestly. Um, she was uh, chubby, uh, big glasses. Like, she's always had big, goofy glasses and, you know, wore the flowery shirts and, like, really what an 80s mom would look like. I used to love singing with her. Um, she loved Patsy Cline. I really grew to like Patsy Cline, you know. Uh, Did you have a particular song? Uh, well, her song was Crazy. Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling. And like when Patsy Cline would come on, we would, you know, she would make sure I was there to dance with her, you know. So uh, that was that was really cool. I'm crazy, crazy for feeling so blue. So how do we get from these happy memories, telling ghost stories and dancing to country music? to a kid convinced that his father was secretly leading a satanic cult. It all started in the late 80s. By 1989, the Quinnies had four children and were struggling with their finances. So, I mean, we weren't poor, 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 but we were very much lower middle class, you could say. A lot of times we'd, we'd have to skip out of the rent at night, okay? Uh, shame to say that, but things were pretty bad. Then Melvin says he and Debbie started having marriage problems. There were constant fights about money and infidelities on both sides. And eventually, it reached a breaking point. One day we got in a big argument uh, over finance and everything else. She told me, she says, uh, I want a divorce. And I told her, I said, look, you can have the damn divorce. I said, but I'm, I'm going to fight for custody of these kids. Next thing I know, uh, it was uh, Thanksgiving night. Uh, Debbie and I had already decided on the divorce and everything, but it was Thanksgiving night of 89. Debbie was cooking Thanksgiving dinner, and we were going to have a lot of the neighbors and just, you know, all together. So there was neighbors in and out, in and out, you know, bringing stuff and helping Debbie with the dinner, and it was an all-night affair. We had a big Thanksgiving dinner at our house. Everything was legitimate normal, you know? Like, fucking hunky-dory. And then uh, the next day, I think, is when we left. The day after Thanksgiving, while Melvin was out, Debbie gathered up all the kids and moved out of the house without telling him. John was nine, Sarah was five, Tammy was not yet one, and the baby Matthew was just seven weeks old. Like it was a very sudden thing, and there wasn't no packing up or anything. Like, uh, I don't think we took clothes with us. Like, I remember a couple days before that, my dad had got me uh, the Batman comic, which is a cool one. It's the one where it's 
Robin gets killed by the Joker, you know, and uh, I think a week before that, he got me a Michael Jackson's Thriller, the record. And, like, I mean, we didn't have time to get that stuff, you know. And I remember always asking, like, hey, I want my comic book. I want my records. You know, I want my stuff. Debbie took the kids to a friend's house and then went to see Melvin. He'd spent the day at his parents' place. His car had broken down, and he was in the garage trying to fix it. I was working on my car, and this car pulls up. Debbie came up to me, and I said, what are you doing here, Debbie? You know, and and, uh, she said, well... The kids and I are not home anymore. I said, what? She said, well, Sarah has been molested. I said, she's been molested? She said, yeah, and, and you can't see us, and you can't have any contact with us. Uh, and I said, why? And she said, because you are a, a suspect. Melvin says he was in a state of shock. He immediately got on the phone and connected with a caseworker from Child Protective Services. He asked her who else they were investigating. She just nonchalantly said, oh, oh, you're the only suspect. Just like that, you know. Meanwhile, John was in his own state of confusion. Up to that point, he hadn't even known that his parents were getting a divorce. So this separation came completely out of the blue. He remembers that first night away from his dad, staying with his mom and siblings at a friend's house. Uh, After, you know, got laid, I thought, you know, when are we going home? And that's when I asked my mom, when can we go back home? And she said, uh, she told me my dad was sick. And I remember being, being young, I assumed that meant an illness, you know? And I remember the first thing I thought about was my grandmother who had just passed away and them telling me she was sick and I thought, Okay, this could be bad. Um, I had no idea they meant mentally sick. John's memory of this time is hazy. He just remembers being scared that his father might be dying. He doesn't know whose house he was in. He thinks it might have been church friends of his mom's. But he does remember that there were a bunch of adults there, and they were asking him a lot of questions about his dad. Remember them asking me if I'd seen anything weird between him and Sarah, you know, or seen anything happen. I'm like, no, why? And then they said, well, Sarah was molested by somebody. And I'm like, well, what's that? You know, because I didn't fucking know that word. And who, who's talking to this you? This is my mom talking to me at this point with her friends or associates or whoever these people were. And uh, I said, well, what is that? And they said, yeah, that's when they told me it's like, you know, touching inappropriate places. I think they used the word like under the underwear, bikini areas, you know, like places you don't touch kids. And I was just like, okay, well, what does this have to do with dad? And then they said, you know, we think your dad might have done it. And what'd you Um, think when you heard that? I'm thinking, like, diaper changing, you know, normal, like, parent stuff, you know? Like, you know, well, and I think I remember saying stuff like that, you know, like, well, maybe it was this, maybe this, you know? It didn't register me as something that could happen. John didn't really understand what was going on, but he could tell the adults around him, including his mother, were panicking. After the break, the allegations against Melvin begin to stack up. Welcome back to the show. 
I opened this case on January 4th, 1990, which would have meant it would have probably been a, the day or the day after I interviewed Ms. Quinney. This is Mike Appleby. He's a retired FBI agent in San Antonio, and he's seen a lot of disturbing cases in his time. But he still remembers the day Debbie Quinney called him 30 years ago. She told him that she wanted to report what she knew about a dangerous cult that was operating underground. On the phone, she generally was saying she had information about this group of people, and they were a satanic group, and they had done some terrible things, and they were all over, I, I want to say, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana. And, uh, but the key word for me was, she said, and, and there was a sacrifice, a ritualistic sacrifice of an infant This phone call was made about a month after Debbie had accused Melvin of molesting their daughter, Sarah. Now she was saying that he was involved in this cult and that he was dangerous. Appleby hadn't heard anything like this before, so he asked Debbie if they could meet up in person. We met at this Jim's restaurant, which is a chain here in San Antonio. It's just a typical diner. We sat down at a booth and got my pen out and started taking notes. And then Debbie started telling Appleby about horrific sexual abuse and secret rituals with men in dark robes chanting around bonfires. She told Appleby that in one of these rituals, Melvin had forced her to sacrifice her newborn baby to the devil. She said they performed this ritualistic ceremony on her, and it was a group of men. Uh, I think she even said they were wearing hoods or dressed in black. I think it was something inspired by Melvin, or he was the one that was a key figure in this sacrifice of this child. Debbie said that the ritual she witnessed was in Fort Worth, at a mobile home park where Melvin had once worked as a night watchman. So Appleby called up a backhoe operator and some Texas Rangers and told them to meet him there. He flew Debbie and a friend of hers up to Fort Worth and put them up in a hotel room. Just before his team was about to go dig up the mobile home park, he sat down with Debbie to discuss the plan. I get him in the room, and I'm going over the story again. This is what we're going to do. Can you go to this place? Do you think you can find where this child was buried? She said, absolutely. I said, okay, boots and saddles, let's go. They started walking around the mobile home park, with Debbie leading the way. Well, she'd point somewhere, and... And then she'd start crying this child's name. I can't remember what it was. Let's say it's Lauren. I'm sorry, Lauren, and all this stuff. And I'm going, wow. Debbie wandered around the property, pointing to different locations. But Appleby says she could never say exactly where the ceremony happened. Just before they'd start to dig, she'd change her mind and say it was actually somewhere else. Appleby ended up spending several days with Debbie, looking for bodies in two separate locations where she claimed Melvin had led human sacrifices. They dug for hours at one site, but they didn't find anything. And what did she say when you didn't find anything? Well, that may, maybe that's not it, or maybe it was over there. After about the third or fourth uh, spot, it just got to the point where things weren't adding up. After that, Agent Appleby ended the investigation. And you might think the case against Melvin Quinney would be closed. The rumors of his secret life as a Satanist would be put to rest. But that isn't what happened. 
Because even though the FBI couldn't find anything, investigators did gather compelling evidence in the form of testimony from Melvin's nine-year-old son, John. John had been put into therapy right after they left that Thanksgiving. And there, he was asked a lot of questions about his dad. One day, he started talking about these memories he had, things he'd repressed, things his father had done to him. Um, I, I don't know the exact moment it happened. I just remember all of a sudden, I'm recalling really terrible things, like I'm remembering them. A month later, John Quinney would give an official statement that would become evidence in his father's trial. This statement, written by a doctor who examined him, reads, John states that bad things used to happen in fields in the nighttime. He remembers going to a field with his mom and dad. There were a lot of people there. There were fires lit in big trash cans. This place was to celebrate the devil. His dad would sometimes use a deep voice to say, I am Legion. To the authorities in San Antonio, John's statement was so detailed and so disturbing, they thought they'd stumbled across a -a once-in-a-lifetime case. But the thing is, John Quinney wasn't the only kid claiming to have been victimized by a satanic cult. And Melvin wasn't the only adult accused of leading one. A lot of God's people think the devil's in hell. He ain't in hell. He's right here in your city. In Malden, Massachusetts, preschoolers accused three adults of tying them to trees and attacking them with knives. They're taking a child to savagely torment, sexually abuse, drain their blood, make them drink blood. The list is endless. In Olympia, Washington, two girls accused their father of abusing them in satanic rituals. My next guest was used also in worshiping the devil, participated in rituals and cannibalism. In Niles, Michigan, in Maplewood, New Jersey. Satanic ritual abuse. In Austin, Texas. Has become the fastest growing and most controversial. In Jordan, Minnesota. Psychological phenomenon in the country. At a preschool outside Los Angeles. In California, in Minnesota, New York, Tennessee, Texas. More children and more children. From Gimlet, welcome to the second season of Conviction, American Panic. On the next episode, we go back to where this all began, when Satan came to America from Canada. The next seven episodes of Conviction are available weekly, only on Spotify. To keep listening to the story, download the Spotify app, search Conviction, and listen for free. Conviction is a production of Gimlet. This season is hosted and produced by me, Julia Marchese, and Sharon Shattuck. Our producers are Meg Driscoll and John White. Additional production by Matthew Boll. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editors are Devin Taylor and Alex Bloomberg. Sound design and mixing by Matthew Boll. 
Sessions. Original music by Marcus Pagala with orchestration by Mark Beckley and performances by Gregory Luce, Brianne Lugo, Susan D. Mandel, Kieran McElwain, Samuel Bagala, Chris Rogers, Aaron Drescher, and Josh Plotner. Additional music by Bobby Lord. Our fact checker is Nicole Pasalka. Special thanks to Liz Fulton, Nazanin Rafsanjani, Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr., Matt Nelson, Lynn Levy, Mike Snedeker, Debbie Nathan, Keith Hampton, L. Kirk Hagen, and Jordan Smith. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.